Bibles this morning. We're going to continue our study in the book of 1 Timothy. So let's turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Again, one of what we call the uh, pastoral epistles, and that being because Paul wrote these two pastors, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus, but that does not mean that the passage is not for all Christians. It is part of the Bible, part of God's revealed word of himself to us. And as even 2nd Timothy tells us, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction and in righteousness. So no part of the word of God is not important. Remember, Paul's instructing Timothy to ensure sound doctrine is taught in the church. Judaizers have crept in, telling Gentile Christians that they must keep the law in order to be a Christian. While these legalists were abusing the law, Paul reminds Timothy and us that the law is good when used lawfully. And seeing that the law of God is good is the theme of this morning's message. So we're going to read verses 8 through 11 this morning. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And as we examine the goodness of God's law, there's three relationships we're going to look at. And I'll mention those as soon as we read the passage. So 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. And if you are physically able, if you please stand with me and honor the reading of God's word. Paul writing to Timothy says, But we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and for sinners, for unholy and profane, for murderers of fathers and murderers of mothers, for menslayers, manslayers, for whoremongers, for them that defile themselves with mankind, for men stealers, for liars, for perjured persons, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine, according to the glorious gospel, the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. So again, this morning we're examining the goodness of God's law, or the law of God is good, and three relationships I want us to see. First, the relationship of the law to the good. The relationship of the law to the good. We'll see that in verse 8 in the beginning of verse 9. Then in the rest of verse 9, and then verse 10 will be our second point, which is the relationship to the godless. And then we're going to end with the relationship to the gospel. And we'll see that at the end of verse 10 and all of verse 11. You and I need to know the law is good if used lawfully. And so let's learn to use the law lawfully. Father, again, thank you for your goodness to us. Again, Lord, as we examine this passage, I pray for wisdom and your Holy Spirit's um, empowerment and we'll thank you for it in jesus precious name amen thank you. you may be seated but we know paul says the word know is a greek word oida that means to fully know or understand it's not a coming to know or a getting to know or a knowing by um, experience which is gnosko and there's different words in the greek language for uh, no, but this is a, a full knowledge of. In other words, this stands as a fact that we know the law is good. Even our conscience tells us there is a law, does it not? Those that say <clears throat> there are no absolutes, 
which by the way in and of itself is an absolute statement, are showing that even in that there are still a law, if you will, written in our hearts, our conscience. Now I said before, even the tribes, the cannibal tribes of the past, still had a law, even though it was a perverted law, a perverted system of good and bad. You know, we can eat the neighbor's tribe, but we don't eat from our own tribe. Okay, it's a real perverted system, but the idea still being is there's still a conscience that says there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. There are absolutes in this world. There are certain things that are absolutely right and certain things that are absolutely wrong, and those come from God himself. What God has said is right is right, and what he said is wrong is wrong. You have to be at least that smart to be a preacher. But what God has said is good is good. We live in a world that calls evil good and good evil and has everything topsy-turvy from what it should be. But the law of God is good. It's not a changing law or a changing standard. We have today the teaching that we have your truth and my truth, that truth is subjective. Well, that's a real absurd way of looking at life because there is objective law, is there not? I told you before, I had a man who was insisting, you know, all's good, everything's good. And I said, okay, fine, then I'm going to come and I'm going to uh, kill you and your family and steal everything you have. And he says, oh, that's not good. Well, of course it's not good because everybody does have absolutes of what is right and wrong. And those are established by God himself. It's not something that's changing, not something that's good for you or good for me. And that's what I tried to convince him. I said, well, it's good for me. I think it's a good idea. He goes, yeah, but it's not good for me. I said, okay, so if it's not good for you, but good for me, then where, how do we know which one's right? You see, when people want to argue that there are no absolutes, you got to bring them down to somewhere where they say, well, then there must be an absolute. This is definitely good or definitely not good. But it says the law is good or proper and fitting when used lawfully or properly. Paul writes in Romans 7, 4, uh, 7 12, he says, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy, and just, and good. You see, now when we think of the Old Testament law, God gave many laws to the Jews. Matter of fact, I think it was 614, if I remember correctly, um, different laws that God gave. And many of those laws dealt with the Jewish everyday life. But everything in the law was to point to God. You know, many of the laws they had were different than what their neighbors, the Gentiles, were doing. Now, as we look at many of the laws, we find now through modern science that a lot of the laws were actually just very good and healthy for the people. Now, God already knew that, did he not? But his purpose was distinguishing them from those around him, around them, and everything pointing to God and all their dealings. The problem is, is that the Jewish leaders had added to God's law, making it a burden to the Jews. They had taken what God had written, and they said, okay, here's how it should be applied. And they made it so difficult, so hard, that nobody could fo possibly follow all these things that they added to what God had originally said. 
they were making the law a burden. Instead of pointing to God, it was making it a burden from God. But is that not how Satan tries to pervert things? By the way, legalists still do the same thing. There are those that still have these lists of do's and don'ts. You want to be a good Christian? Here's your list of do's and don'ts. Now, are there certain things Christians should do and certain things Christians should not do? Yes. But to sit there and demand from somebody, do this list and now you're spiritual, is false. Because there are people who will follow all the legalistic laws and still be no closer to God than what they were before. I heard in a church once, somebody said, well, what we need to do is tell this individual, if he puts on a suit, we'll make him an usher. And if we make him an usher, well, number one, he'll start dressing right. And number two, then he'll start uh, being faithful to church. It's like, boy, that's putting the cart before the horse, isn't it? You see, we give him this list of do's and don'ts, and then we can make him right with God. That's not how it works. Get your heart right with God, and then you're going to do what you're supposed to do. And by the way, be faithful, do what you're supposed to do, and then you can be used at church. It's not we're going to give you a position to try to make you faithful to church. That's not how it works. But then let's think about the moral law. We commonly refer to them as the Ten Commandments. These show our relationship to God. We're not to have idols before God. We're not to take his name in vain. We're to remember the Sabbath day. Our relationship with God, right? But then what is the rest of the commandments dealing with? Our relationship to other men. Honor your father and mother. Do not kill. Do not commit adultery. Excuse me. Do not covet. The moral law is still God's standards or God's demands on all of us, is it not? You take societies, there's still laws of adultery, still laws of stealing, still laws of murder. Now, unfortunately, sometimes we're getting skewed and, and misapplied, but there's still those laws. But then he continues on. So he says, but we know that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Knowing this, again, the same no, same form of the same word of the previous verse, that the law is not made for a righteous man. Now, what does that mean? Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And the moment you and I are born again, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ, his righteousness is imputed to our account, right? Romans 4, 23 through 25, Now it was not written for his sake, alone that it was imputed to him, speaking of Abraham, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed if we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. So when I receive Jesus Christ, God sees me as righteous as Jesus Christ because his righteousness has been imputed into my account. Now when we are in Christ, and we're being filled with the Spirit of God, Ephesians 5.18, or controlled by the Spirit of God, we have then as a result the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, 
meekness, temperance, against such there is no law. You know, nobody writes a law against loving somebody. Nobody writes a law against being meek or temperate. There are no laws against these things. But this will be the fruit of the Spirit coming out, showing forth itself as we are being filled with the Spirit of God. So again, the verse saying, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man, I believe there's a twofold application of this. First of all, then in Christ, we are dead to the law, therefore freed from the bondage of the law in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? Say, what are you talking about? Hold your place here in 1 Timothy. Go back with me to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. And Paul explains this in the 7th chapter of Romans, a book that lays out such a, a legal argument of our justification. Romans chapter 7 and verse 1 Paul writes, Knowing ye, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law, how that the law hath dominion over man as long as he liveth. Okay, so, you are under the law as long as you are alive. Right? That's what he says. For the woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then... If, while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she should be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, ye also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that ye should be married to another, even to him who is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. For when we were in the flesh... The motions of our sins, which were by the law, did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead, wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. All right, what is Paul talking about here? He uses marriage as an illustration. When Susan and I took our vows, our, our commitment, our covenant, our oath, if you will, to one another, standing in 1995 before God and all those witnesses, we said, till death us do part, which I had a hard time getting out that day, but that's neither here nor there. Came out like to F us part, I couldn't say it right, but anyhow, God knew what I meant and so did all the people there. I am bound by the law to her till one of us dies. Okay, now, this is what Paul is saying. You and I, as long as we are alive, are bound to the law. The law can't die, but I, in Christ, did die. Thereby, okay, so, as long as Susan and I are married, she can't marry another. But if I die, she's free to marry again, right? So, if you take the law as the husband... That the law can't die. But we in Christ are dead to sin. That's what chapter 6 is about, right? In Romans. So in Christ, I died, but I'm raised in newness of life. Okay? I died to the old man. I died to the law. I am no longer bound by the law. Now I am free to remarry, if you will, 
And what does the Bible call us? The bride of Christ. I have a new husband in Christ. Does that make sense? That is the illustration Paul is given here in Romans chapter 7. So, I am freed from the law in Christ. Therefore, the law is not for a righteous man. Does that make sense? Now, the second fold application of that is this. It's simply this. If I'm doing the right thing and not breaking the law, I don't have to fear the punishment of the law. I don't have to fear law enforcement coming and arresting me for murder. You know why? I haven't murdered anybody. Unless it's a false accusation, which hopefully the courts will find out, I'm not going to be arrested. I don't have to fear the law because I haven't broken the law. So Christian, why we should live a life that is obeying the law so that we don't have to fear the law. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what Paul means then, the twofold application of what he means here by the phrase, going back to our passage, knowing this, that the law is not made for a righteous man. So now we move on. That is the law in relation to the good. Now let's look secondly at the law in relation to the godless. He says in the rest of the verse, but for the lawless and disobedient, and then it goes through all this list of sins. You see, the law shows us our transgressions. Galatians 3.19, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. So what purpose does the law serve? Well, it's there because of our sin, and it shows us our sin, Romans 7.7, 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law said, thou shalt not covet. Now, how do I know it's wrong to want everything that Charlie has if the law didn't say I shouldn't covet? Again, if there's not a law that says that it's wrong, then I can kill Charlie and his family and steal everything he has because there's no law saying it's wrong. But there is a law that says it's wrong. There's a law that says I shouldn't kill. And there's also a law that I shouldn't covet. So if I kill Charlie and his family and take everything he has, I'm not going to, brother, just in case you were worried about it. <laughs> I'd be breaking God's law. But it's through the law I learn what sin is, right? Okay. So now Paul takes and he breaks down, if you will, these classifications or types of sin. So as we go through this, we see, but the lawless and disobedient. These laws show man his rebellion. Lawless has the idea of those trying to live outside of the law. Disobedient are ones that will not be subject to rule. The rebellious in heart. And so does the law not show us our own rebellion in our hearts? Show us how lawless sometimes we can be? Well, that's who the law is for. Now, I'm glad, again, <clears throat> that once we're saved, we have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. But then the law also shows man his godlessness. It says, and for the ungodly and for sinners. The ungodly means impious. Sinners, obviously sinful people. Well, that's every one of us, isn't it? 
Again, how will we know our sinfulness if it wasn't for the law? The law shows man's profanity. The next little phrase says for the unholy and profane. Profane is an interesting word, the root from which we get the same word threshold. The idea is to be trodden under. So profane is something that's very common, all trodden under. You know, a threshold, you don't think about stepping on it, right? You just walk right through the door and just step on it all the time. Well, that's the idea of something profane. And when we treat the things of God as just they're to be trodden under, common, we're not separating the profane from the holy. So profane doesn't necessarily mean bad. It's just something common. Well, you and I understand our... our not separating the holy things naturally, but we should have a respect for the things of God, should we not? You know, think about back in the Old Testament with the days of the temple and whatnot. It was to be a revered place. You and I have the holy word of God. I'm going to tell a story about my wife. I'll pay for it later. When my wife was a little girl, they in church would sing as our young people sing, the B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me, I Stand Alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Well, being a little girl and taking things very literally, she put down her Bible and stands on the Word of God because that's what the song told her to do. Her teacher changed the words of the song, and I don't remember what it was changed to, just for Susan. Because I can imagine the teacher having a hard time explaining, no, that's not what we literally mean by that, and how that actually standing on your Bible is profaning something so holy. But yet try not to discourage a little girl at the same time. Now, I will pay for telling that story later, I'm sure, but it's a true story. The law exposes man's violence. It talks about murderers of fathers, murderers of mothers, and manslayers, all other murderers. Say, well, I've never killed anybody, but did Jesus, and as he's given, say, the law says thou shalt not kill, but I say if you hate your brother without a reason, you're guilty of murder. How many of us have had a hateful, vengeful attitude? Verse 10, the law exposes man's sexual perversion. Whoremongers... The Greek word pornos has the idea of pornography, prostitution, fornication. It actually covers a whole realm of sexual sins. It's interesting that those sins are not as talked about as much as the next part that says for them to defile themselves of mankind. You mentioned sodomy, and boy, all of a sudden you get all the amens. But you talk about pornography and fornication, and there's not quite the amens in the crowd that there should be. But may I say, both are a violation of God's law. The law reveals man's depravity and lack of truth. Men's stealers has the idea of slave dealers. Liars, that's pretty self-explanatory. Anything against God's truth and perjured persons. And then to wrap it up, Paul says at the end of verse 10, and if there be any other thing that is contrary to sound doctrine. Contrary has the idea of opposed and sound healthy. So can I say it this way? Anything opposed to healthy doctrine. So that's the law in relation to the godless. Now, let's look lastly at the law in relation to the gospel. So again, verse 10 ends with anything that is contrary to sound doctrine. Healthy doctrine 
comes from an unwavering commitment to the inerrant, infallible, authoritative Word of God. Where do we get our authority to say, to speak truth? Where do we find truth? What is truth? The Word of God is truth. It is the ultimate, authoritative, inerrant, infallible Word of God. And you and I need to have an unwavering commitment to the Word of God. Inerrant. It's without error. Infallible. It's incapable of having error. How can we say such things? Because who is the author of the Bible? God. God cannot lie. His character will not allow his word to be with error. It can't be. Otherwise, it's not truly the word of God. And how many times throughout Scripture do we see it claimed to be the very word of God? And so if you and I believe that, Christian, then you and I need to have an unwavering commitment to the Bible. Now, I emphasize this because so often Christians want to compromise and, and, and capitulate to what the world wants to say is truth. But listen, there is only one truth, and that is God's truth. Awfully quiet. There should be an amen on that one. I'll say it again. There is only one truth, and that's God's truth. Thank you. All right, we're awake. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17, and that from a child, the Greek word brephos, from an infant, thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise in the salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. How would we know about salvation if it wasn't for the word of God? How would we know of our sinfulness? How would we know of God's great love and mercy and grace to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross at Calvary if it wasn't for the word of God? How would we know that we can have eternal life in Jesus Christ if it wasn't for the Bible? And then he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. Those three English words are one Greek word, theonoustos, theos being God, noustos being breathed, literally meaning God-breathed, inspiration of God. That's exactly what it means. The word of God is God-breathed. It's not the words of men, but it's God-breathed and is profitable for doctrine. That's what we're talking about, sound doctrine, for reproof. See, doctrine is proper teaching. Reproof is showing me what's wrong, what's not right in my life. For correction, that's how to get it right. And for instruction in righteousness, how to stay right once I got it right. The Bible does all those things for me, that the man of God may be perfect. The word perfect there has the idea of mature, not an immature, not wavering with every slight of doctrine, not, not compromising, not, not just going with whatever said, but being able to stand on the truth and know the truth. Thoroughly furnished. The word's not thoroughly furnished, it's thoroughly furnished, all the way through, completely furnished, having all the equipment you need in order to do what? Unto all good works. Understand something. God has provided everything you need to do the work that he's called you to. God is not like the United States Marine Corps that will give you broken equipment and tell you deal with it and suck it up. And you have to learn how to improvise, adapt, and overcome, right? I am glad in God's army, he has properly equipped us with everything we need in order to serve him. We are thoroughly furnished. We're not, it's complete. It's 100% all the way thoroughly done. The armor of God given to us in Ephesians chapter 6, he gives us every piece we need in order to fight the spiritual warfare that, he has, that we are engaged in. 
He's given us his grace. He's given us his power. He's given us the indwelling Holy Spirit. We are completely equipped with everything we need to serve God. Christian, I want that to sink in. You are completely equipped with everything you need in order to serve God. And so when you say, I can't witness... I can't do that. I can't do this. Listen, God has provided the equipment. God has provided what you need. You need to learn to put the whole armor on and get into battle. You need to put on what God has given you. You need to live every day in his strength and his power and having the Holy Spirit of God controlling you. And that is the only way it can be done. But he's provided it. It's there. It's readily available for you. And so Christian... When we see, and I thank God we do have some strong Christians in this church, but Christianity as a whole, I believe, in our day has become very weak because we have not learned that God has equipped us with what we need to serve him. The authoritative, inerrant, infallible word of God. The Bible is to be our sole authority of all faith and practice. You see, Paul rewarned Timothy that there would be coming a time, he says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. And we have a whole world today full of people who don't want to hear sound doctrine. They don't want to hear, thus saith the Lord. They don't want to hear that there are absolutes according to God's word. They don't want to hear about God's law. What they want to hear is, you're a good person. Go feel good. Go feel good about yourself. Go do good, be good, feel good. And the crowds go wild with this type speech, do they not? But you, go, you hear it so often, over and over and over again. And even from those that name the name of Christ, of God just wants you to be happy. You know, nowhere in Scripture does God say, my goal for your life is your happiness. He says you can have joy in your life, but he does not say, my goal for your life is your happiness. As a matter of fact, there is nothing in the Scripture that says anything selfish desire we have is what God has for us. But everything we do is to be for his glory. Yes, we live in this time Paul talked about. They don't endure sound doctrine, but they want teachers having itching ears. Listen, we have all the more responsibility today of preaching and teaching sound doctrine. So healthy doctrine comes from an unwavering commitment to the inerrant, infallible, authoritative word of God. But the law is also a schoolmaster that points us to Christ. Again, go back to verse 8. But we know this, that the law is good if a man use it lawfully. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So use the law lawfully in sharing the gospel. Now, I've shared with you before, one of the ways in which you can do this is part of the problem we face today is everybody thinks they're innately good, right? Hallmark teaches you that. Everybody's good. All you got to do is follow your heart. There's a little bit of good in everybody. I don't understand how people can even possibly think that. Well, I never saw them doing that because they were just a good person. The Bible says our heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. 
So from my understanding of Scripture, then, everybody is wicked, not good. Now, using the law lawfully, the problem is, is many see themselves as good, not wicked. Did not even Jesus have people come to him and say, Master, what must I do to be saved? And he starts laming different things of the law. Oh, I've done all those since my youth. The rich man, and he says, well, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and follow me. And he walks away sad. Why? Because he was covetous and he wouldn't give up his stuff. And Jesus was pointing, no, you don't keep all the law. You have sin in your life. But the man walked away sad because he wanted to keep his things and wasn't willing to sell them. So therein is a way in which we can use the law because most, most people think they're innately good. You can use the law to show them how sinful they really are. For instance, who haven't I picked on? I don't know. I won't pick on anybody. If I were to go to somebody and just ask them, <clears throat> who says, I'm a good person. I'm going to get to heaven by my good works. Okay. Let's look at what God has to say about that. God says that we're not to steal. Have you ever taken anything that doesn't belong to you, no matter how small and insignificant it is? Most people are going to admit, yes, I have. Then you ask, what does that make you? A thief. Then you can ask them, have you ever used God's name in vain? Many people admit, yes, I have. God says you're not to take his name in vain, so that makes you a blasphemer. Then you can ask, have you ever committed adultery? Now, before you answer the question, let me explain. Jesus said, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her in his heart, he's committed adultery with her already. Have you then ever committed adultery? Most would have to admit, by that definition, yes, I have. That makes you an adulterer. So there's three, and you could say, so by your own admission, you're already a thieving blasphemer, adulterer. You could ask more if you would like. Do you understand how using the law lawfully will help somebody see their own sin? Because many times before they see their need for Christ, they need to see how sinful and wicked they are. Using the law lawfully will help me show them how sinful and wicked they really are. Does that make sense? Now I can show them. Now, and you could ask them about lying, you could ask him about if he ever hated somebody because God says that equates to murder. So you can go through all these and you can have them being a lying, thieving, murderous, adulterer, blasphemer, God, all these things, and say that doesn't put you in very good standing now, does it? You see, now you use the law lawfully to show them how sinful they are. Now they're ready to hear the good news of Jesus Christ will save. Now you can tell them, See, you're actually not good enough to get into heaven. But Jesus Christ died for you. That, my friend, is how you and I today still can use the law lawfully. And should use the law lawfully. Now, I believe in this passage it is referring to, the, to God's law. But can I expand the application also to all of man's law, using, God, uh, using law lawfully, again, still requires absolutes, does it not? You know, we have these lawyers and whatnot that try to twist the law and 
as Josh and I have discussed many times, it seems like, you know, you try to write an ordinance for the city and it seems like it's really going to be a good law. Then you send it to the lawyers who change all the verbiage so it says absolutely nothing. And that's very frustrating at times. But the law used lawfully is a good thing. I'll give you, for instance, of that. We had, just several years ago, our governor make a declaration by executive order that churches should not be meeting, right? But we have a law that trumps the executive order called the First Amendment of the United States that says that we are allowed to practice our, uh, uh, and to meet peacefully and to um, have freedom of worship and freedom, freedom of, um, man, my brain's going dead. Anyhow, we have the right to do, be here and meet. Thank you or freedom of speech and whatnot. But anyhow, it's all there contained in the First Amendment, which trumps the governor's executive order. And so saying, thank you very much, Mr. Governor, for your executive order, but we have a higher law that says we can meet. And by the way, even above that, God, who said not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together, using the law lawfully, we're able to say, yes, we can still meet. And, by the way, we're able to take him to court. Now, we started meeting before the court decision, but we're able to take him to court and to prove to him that he was unlawful in what he said and using the law lawfully won the court case and he had to back down on that decision. Law is really important, is it not? And using it lawfully is extremely important, is it not? So, Christian, you and I need to understand the law of God is good and you and I need to use it lawfully and not be if you will abusers of God's law now let me apply this again to the passage what is happening here that, that Paul is dealing with with Timothy the Judaizers are coming into the churches and saying you Gentiles are not truly born again because you've not been circumcised you're not meeting on the Sabbath you're not doing this you're not doing that and until you do all these things it is, you're not truly a born-again child of God, adding on to them things that God never required because the law is fulfilled in Jesus Christ, and they are abusing the law, not using it lawfully, getting Christians all confused and, and whatnot. And Paul says, no, the law is good when used lawfully. What they're doing is not lawful use of the law, but rather this is how it's to be used. And part of it is exactly what I just told you. Showing somebody their lost condition is a lawful use or a rightful use, a proper use of the law. Why? Because does the Bible itself not even say that the law is a schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ? Well, if that's what the word of God says about the law, then I should use the law to point to Jesus Christ, who is the fulfillment of the law, right? Now let's continue. We'll be wrapping it up here just in a moment. According to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which was committed to my trust. Paul wraps it all up then with a few things. The gospel is the glorious message that all need to hear because it is one's only hope of eternal life. Now, the law is insufficient to save, but it points to the one who can save them. And then, as he talks about the blessed God, which has the idea of worthy of praise, 
God is worthy of all praise. Revelation 5, 12, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the land that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then in ending, we'll look at this last phrase, Paul says, which was committed to my trust. Paul was given the privilege of writing much of the New Testament. He was entrusted with the very words of God, explaining to us the gospel of Christ. But Paul taught Timothy, and now Timothy has the responsibility of preaching and teaching sound doctrine and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Timothy is told to teach others. And then every generation in Christianity, they have been teaching others and been teaching others and been teaching others. And today I stand before you again teaching others. But once we have the information now that has been entrusted to us, what are you going to do with the truth that has now been entrusted to you? First, the truth is all of us are sinners deserving of hell, but Jesus Christ came and died for us and made a way of salvation and we can have our hope in Jesus Christ. We can have eternal life, the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. And we can be saved. And I believe most here this morning are. But if you've not been, that would be the first thing is to realize the truth of God's word teaches you. You can have salvation in Jesus Christ. Now, Christian, those of us that have been trusted with sound doctrine, are we living according to the sound doctrine? Are we teaching others sound doctrine? And are we sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those around us? Because the truth has been been entrusted to you. What are you doing with the truth? The law of God is good. It shows man his sinfulness and leads to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. By the way, this is why sound doctrine is critical. Because there's not many roads to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. There's not earn your way to heaven, but it's only through faith in Jesus Christ. And so we can share the pure, unadulterated truth of the word of God that he loves and wants to save sinners. Let's bow forward a prayer.